This is my exit plan. You heard about Maroi and how they can be killed. Well, I made a journal entry about vampires. Yeah, the more classic blood-drinking variety. Yeah, and werewolves. Uh, I think, I think these are the first two monsters everyone always thinks about when we think about monsters. The truth is, vampires and werewolves are extremely rare. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the truth. Well, maybe once they were more common, you know, before modern communications and transport enabled us to coordinate better and kind of shrunk the world a bit, if you like. Uh, maybe they've only ever been known really in folklore. But anyway, uh, vampires. So the short version, they don't have sparkly skin and they aren't all that pleasant. It might be possible to find a good vampire if you could call it that. But I think their essence is of corruption and death, which tends to be counter to what we think of as good. Well, there's a whole there's a whole line of philosophy I could go down re- regarding relativism, maximal social utility, and so on that would let me justify just about any depravity as good under a certain lens. But yeah, I just don't subscribe to that really. Well, I believe good is as good does at the time it is done. Yeah, you can't reliably predict the future. So any action you take now, based on an idea that it's for some distant good, is a lie. In fact, you'll probably find that anyone who's saying that they're doing doing something or other, you know, for the greater good, you'll probably almost always find out that they somehow lump themselves into the greater good and everyone else into what has to be sacrificed for that good. And you just don't know what's going to come of your actions in the long term. So you have to judge what to do at the moment you have to do it. Anything else is just rationalization and apology. Okay, so here's something I found in catalogue of the various lost denizens of the old world written by our good old friend David Gilstein. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's a transcript from an interview or a confession or just a short story written by an aspiring horror author. It seems to describe a Dracula vampire. Uh, there, there we go. That's my terminology. This is a story about a Dracula. Given it was recorded by this David Gelstein, I suspect it may have some truth in it, no matter how ridiculous it may seem. I'll have a little fun with it. Uh, either that or I'll um, I don't know, spiral into madness and hide my wardrobe. I am recording this in my wardrobe. So here goes. <clears throat> Remember, this is written by a, uh, a French dude. I used to think my being was hollow and empty. I used to mop about in dark places full of the irredeemable sadness of the blackened soul. No, look, I can't keep that up. <laughs> Sorry to any anyone who's French. Uh, that was terrible. I'll just go ahead in my normal voice because I think that's probably good enough. I used to think my being was hollow and empty. I used to mope about in dark places full of the irredeemable sadness of the blackened soul. 
I used to be a whiny little bitch. How has that changed? In one short night that lasted the entirety of my life, my eyes were opened to the true tragedy. I had wasted what time I had. Joie de vivre, I said to the young woman cowering in the corner of my room. It means love of life. She asked what I was going to do with her. The tremble in her voice matched the tremble in her lower lip. I turned my back to her and stared at the door. The room we were in had a bed, a nightstand, and through an arch, a bench with bowl and jug of water. The one window next to the door faced east. Despite the uneven and blurred glass, it would have an unobstructed view of the rising sun in a couple of hours. It was perfect. The woman shifted, her heart beat fierce in my ears, her blood warm and tantalising, like hot chicken soup on a winter's day. I told her I would do nothing. Nothing to her. She asked if I would let her go. Huh. I shook my head and turned to face her. That wasn't up to me. It would come down to you obeying my command, I told her. Her pulse jumped and her throat constricted as she swallowed. I didn't want to scare her too much, so I let the corners of my mouth lift. I'll tell you a little about me, about what is going on here, I said, taking a seat on the bed, leaning forward with my elbows on my knees. I was once like you. I bought into the romance and mystique of the vampire. I read the poems and ballads, felt my heart soar in sympathy with the wretched girl and her vampire lover. It seemed that my life meant nothing if I couldn't devote it to someone whose heart was as empty as mine. I even wrote vomit-inducing poetry and signed it with a drop of my blood. The girl bit her lip to still his trembling. Her heart slowed a little as I continued. The hall I found you? I asked and she nodded. I was there doing the same ridiculous things you were. Can you believe I'm actually less pale now than I was then? I shook my head with the memory. I was approached by a beautiful man. He had thin, bright red lips and haunting eyes so deep, I swear I saw stars sparkling in them. He spun such wonderful images of darkness lit by bright blooms of life that I immediately fell in love with him. The woman's eyes widened, and I heard her take a sharp breath in, as if she was going to ask a question. No, I am not inclined to men. I leant back, my palms pressed against the mattress. You'll see what I mean when you meet him. I sat for a time, maybe a minute or two, staring at the wall above her head, remembering. He made me, I said into the silence. He took me back to a room not unlike this one. I waved one hand about the small room. I didn't think he really was a vampire, the same as you don't think I am. In my mind, he was a step further in the same fantasy you hold. He had somehow managed to bridge the gap between wishing for the peace of figurative death and achieving it. I was wrong, and so are you. I lowered my eyes to lock onto hers. Her nervous twitching ceased, and the slight slackening of her features told me I had her mesmerised. I'd be able to offer suggestions to her in this state. Get her to do just about anything. She wouldn't break any of her strongly held morals, but everything up until then. 
I broke the connection. She would be useless acting on my suggestion. He would sense it. Suffice to say, he turned me. I died that night, just a week ago. Now I'm sitting here with my first victim. You're my initiation, my first taste of untainted human blood. The girl took a deep breath and held her delicate white hand over her mouth, her eyes wide. She wouldn't scream. I told her not to. The sweet aroma of fear laced the room like the delicate perfume of the star jasmine. I chuckled at the flashback to my indescribably bad poetry. I won't be a full vampire until I drink your blood. I imagine it to have something to do with leaving the last vestiges of my humanity behind, to perform the taboo act of cannibalism. Black streaks ran with her tears down her cheeks. It wasn't that long ago that I would have had empathy with this girl. But where there used to be emotion, it was just a cold feeling in my gut. I used to think I was empty, but that empty feeling was my heart and mind conspiring to keep me numb from the magnitude of what I felt. I watched her until she got control of herself again. She was perfect. Such self-control and poise. I picked up the wooden box behind me on the bed and proffered it to her. Take it. Open it. Her hand shook as she wrapped her fingers about the rich brown case. When she opened it, she paused and flicked her eyes up to me. I nodded. She picked up the small steel crucifix and turned it in her hands. My sire will be along shortly to feed, to join me in draining you. The girl's hands froze and her eyes fixed onto me. The fear scent grew. She must have been wondering if I'd given her the crucifix to save her, or so she could say her final prayers. If instead of feeding on you, I drink his blood, if I drain him completely until he is nothing but a withered husk. I pursed my lips and watched her squirm before I continued. If I do that, I will kill the beast growing within me. And when I greet the sun, I will be human once more. I need you to help me do that. Her fear dropped. I almost wanted to frighten her again, to breathe that heady fragrance. But I needed her in command of her senses. He will come, and I will offer him the first bite, as is custom, or so I have been told. You, I said as I jabbed a slender finger toward her head, you will press that crucifix against his head. It will stun him, and that is all I need you to do. She started breathing more easily, her eyes falling to the small bit of steel in her hands. I was glad she couldn't detect my lies, like my sire could. We sat for another 20 minutes, maybe 30, before the door opened and a man stepped in. He moved with such grace and exquisite confidence, it was hard not to stare. It appeared that his shadow moved a split second after him, adding to the dramatic and beautiful aura that draped him like a cloak. The girl noticed too. She looked at me, then back to my master. Now, she understood what I'd meant when I said I had fallen in love with him. He turned his gaze on me, and it was as if I was staring down a tube. I could see only his face. All else was blurred and distorted. As he turned to look at my victim, the effect dropped, and I could see and think clearly again. 
Master, I said, I hope she meets with your approval. He tilted his head, then let his eyes swivel the rest of the way. The edge of his mouth lifted, revealing needle-sharp fang. I concentrated only on the smell of the girl, the sound of her racing heart. If I let any thought of betrayal into my mind, he would detect it. He bent forward, grabbed her hair, and dragged her up the wall until she stood with her neck arched back, her eyes straining to retain contact with my master. I moved in closer. She wasn't going to do it. I had to take action, but quickly, or he'd realise. My sire's neck was so close to me. I could see the veins beneath his skin. I opened my mouth, pulled my lips back. My master turned to look at me with a frown. I seized up, transfixed as if by icicles. He'd figured out I was tricking him. You can wait your turn like a good puppy, he said, then turned back to the girl's neck. With his eyes off her, she had managed to get the crucifix out and up. When he turned back, she pushed the steel cross onto his forehead. She grinned in victory. For a couple of seconds, my sire stood staring at her. It was then that she realised I had lied to her. His hand clenched her hair as he pulled back and snarled. Instead of the stately, calm feeding he had begun, his fury at the girl's audacity launched him into a berserk frenzy. In his blood rage, he paid no notice to the change in my posture. He missed the telltale scent of betrayal. My paws oozed like black mud. I threw myself on him, the hot lure of the girl's blood driving me. At first he ignored me. Once my fangs sank deep into his beautiful porcelain neck, he must have realised what was happening, but it was too late. A vampire's bite induces a kind of ecstasy, a release of worry and a joy born of inevitable finality. Hot crimson life gushed into my mouth and I drank. I sucked until there was nothing left. My master's neck withered and crumbled beneath my thirsty lips. I pulled back, satisfied, and watched as the girl lay dishevelled and bloody beneath a human-shaped ash pile. Her throat irrevocably torn, she gazed at me with wide, black-rimmed eyes, an accusation that reached into me and crushed something. I fell back on the bed and stared at the ceiling, breathing heavily, eyes burning. I must have lain there for another half an hour, because when I decided to move, the first pink fingers of dawn were creeping across the sky. I looked at my hands, at the blood covering my pants. This was the moment of truth. Was the guilt and pain I felt a sign that I'd regained my humanity? Or was that impossible considering what I had done? I looked at the dead girl, her features locked in an expression somewhere between pain and joy. Joie de vivre, I said to her still form. I wanted to live. I needed to see the sun rise. Pulling back the curtains, I stood marvelling at the orange cast the low-lying clouds had taken. I returned to sit on the bed and stared at the window. That's where I am now, talking with you. I'm watching the orange sky turn pink, setting the wispy gauze curtains aflame like the gates to hell. Blood was like a door, a portal to undeath, and now the window glows red. Another door, but I don't know where it leads. It can't be worse than where I am now.
Yeah. Vamps. I can hear your blood, smell you, intuit your intention. They're strong, charming. Like I've read more about them since then. Here's the catch. The sun can burn them, but not kill them. If they fully cover up, they can get about on a cloudy day. Uh, not so likely here in Western Australia, but I'd imagine there'd be places in Europe and America where they could get away with it. I don't know about this guy's take on being turned uh, and returning to humanity. I've read various conflicting you know, stories about all of that. Mr. Geldstein refers to the Aluka, who are the children of Lilith. Uh, Lilith was what, what, the first woman? I don't know, it depends on, on which part of the um, you know, Bible and, and Judaic tradition you look at. But the children of Lilith. They're children only in a spiritual sense, I think. Uh, they're a corrupt or lost soul taken to darkness, reanimating a body with vampiric life. I get the feeling they can't really pass on vampirism. I think it's too personal a thing, and the person must, as he says, be a child of Lilith. I'm not sure what that means. But it makes sense that vampires can't just willy-nilly turn other people. If they could do that, I mean, how long would it take before the whole world had a serious vampire epidemic? I mean, not long. We more or less don't even believe vampires exist. I'd be surprised if there were even one here in Australia. I mean, maybe, maybe it could be in Sydney. It's a pretty big place. But the point of it is, uh, if there is one, I've never heard or seen anything that could indicate it was true. Now, for the other big gun in the popular horror fiction, that's werewolves. I mean, thank God I've not heard of any sign of these guys. Maybe they aren't around anymore, uh, or maybe only in Europe or something. They may not be real at all, but I wouldn't bet on that. Okay, so that bit about the vampire was an excerpt from Dave's book he claims to have gotten from a French aristocrat living abroad in Poland in 1820. Doesn't mention if the vampire was cured by draining his sire completely or if he simply let himself get burnt by the sun. Though I've got another book here called Collected Journals and Writings of the Hunters. It's by a fellow named Victor Hills. Now, this book is beautiful inside. The outer cover is made of wood. It's leather and brass, but quite battered and patchy. The inside uh, appears to be, looks like handwritten in the most beautiful script with illuminations like maybe an old monk would do. Uh, there are pages from other books sewn in, uh, and other places it looks like transcripts from other books. I assume... I assume they'd be the journals and writings of the hunters, whomever or whatever they are. So, how did you? Vamp not vampires, werewolves, yes. May 18, 1718, French Louisiana, Sweetwater. The locals often tell tales of the Rougarou. More often than not, the accused is nothing more than a crazed man or woman who has made a nuisance of themselves one too many times and then has to face the superstitious wrath of the locals. But there is something more to the killer of Sweetwater. The way he threw globs of his victims about evokes the image of a dog tearing at a rabbit. He has left a trail of twelve dead in his wake, 
terrible for sure, but the trouble started with livestock deaths. This is typical of a Rougarou. Often, the inflicted will satiate his desire for carnage by killing sheep and cattle. Perhaps it is the last vestiges of his humanity, trying to blunt the force of his bloodlust on creatures of a lower order. But they will quickly move on to seeking the blood of their own kin soon enough. The dead thus far have come from but two families slain over the course of two months. My first task has been to determine if a member of either family is still alive and if a member is missing. The only survivor I could find is a second cousin and they will likely be next. Frank Legois is the missing one who must be the Rougarou. I found the werewolves of the New World to be of a somewhat different character to those of the Old World. Here, the Rougarou, as they are called, take the form of a monster somewhere between a man and a wolf, never quite taking the full form of the wolf. The only other place I'd heard of this behaviour was in Sweden and Norway, where the greatest berserker warriors were said to be taken by the wolf's spirit in battle. Rougarou are not warriors, but rather murderous beasts with but one purpose. Berserkers would not discriminate between friend or foe when transformed, but I can tell you that Rougarou will distinguish between their family and those who aren't. They will relentlessly hunt down those who share their blood with great discrimination. I have placed Louise Favre in a cabin within a pentagram drawn in chicken's blood. She believes this to be an effective ward against the Rougarou, but the truth is, I don't know if anything other than a strong iron cage could keep one out. Even then, it would need to be extraordinarily robust, as the Rougarou is possessed of tremendous strength. While I write this, I am waiting with my pistols and sword in the rafters. I have soaked myself and my equipment in the strongest liquor I could find in an effort to kill my scent. Silver bullets are loaded and ready, and my sword has silver inlay on its edges. My plan is simple. It is to wait for the beast to show itself, and then shoot it. I have two shots, and will only resort to my sword in the direst of need. If my shots fail, I will need to flee with maximal alacrity, and hope the creature takes as much time and delight in killing Louise as he has his previous victims. It may sound like I am being cowardly, but in the face of such ferocity as a Rougarou displays, I have proven my mettle just by sitting in wait for it. Uh, look, yeah, it goes on, uh, but I'll, I'll give you the spoilers. He killed the monster. It turned out it was Louise. Dun, dun, dun. She transformed while a hunter was scratching away in his book. He was dragged down from the rafters and lost a leg in the process. He did manage to get a shot off, which evidently wounded Louise. Hmm, Louise dog? I don't know. That gave the hunter enough time to pick up his sword from where it dropped uh, and uh, to impale Louise as she lunged at him. He finished her off with a shot to the head. This hunter guy was tough as old boots, because after all that, he tied a tourniquet around his leg and waited for the morning when he was discovered and helped to a surgeon skilled in sewing up amputated limbs, uh, which I think they did a fair bit of back then. Yeah, and they didn't have any anaesthetic either, so there is that. I did some searches on the names and dates in the account, and apparently there was a massacre near what was to be New Orleans at that time. 
It was put down to a fight between two families and a tribe of Native Americans who followed the family south from some other, well, I don't know, some place. I'm not really sure how I feel about all of that. Look, I'm, I'm pretty sure there aren't any werewolves, marsupial or otherwise in Australia. The books I have don't seem to have any journals or letters or articles about Australia or Australian-specific monsters. Uh, this, this isn't because there aren't any. I mean, God knows we've got enough missing people, unexplained deaths to accommodate a few. But these books came from the US and I think one's from Britain. Look, I got enough info out of these books for tonight. But, uh, you know, what I face tonight isn't native to Australia. Uh, that's um, that's kind of jumping ahead a bit. This is my exit plan. Thank you for listening. The next episode will be posted at the same time next week. In that episode, the narrator makes a major discovery that pushes him deeper into the supernatural. Visit gravityundone.net to learn more.